Greetings, welcome, bienvenidos, hola, aloha, ni hao, namaste, konnichiwa, bonjour, bonjourno, sawadee karab, guten tag, jiao wee viva cat bang, half a day, jai janendra, priviet, salam, shalom, peace, now, go vegan, peace how, go vegan, welcome to Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden, our 20th year anniversary as the first vegan talk show ever to infiltrate mainstream media, uh, an uncompromising voice for the animals and human health and the environment. And uh, uh, we, we would have so much more money and donations if only we were to compromise like so many so-called animal rights groups out there selling cage-free eggs or uh, so-called environmental groups out there selling us the uh, false fossil fuel solution when in reality the only solution for the environment is we all have to go vegan we save the planet merely by eating isn't that great i mean we all love to eat we just don't eat meat dairy fish eggs and honey anymore and we do eat uh, fruits vegetables nuts grains seeds and beans and then Voila, we have done it. We've saved the environment. And, you know, you can do your part for the environment today. You don't have to wait for anybody else, you know, just today. You know, all you have to do is go vegan and, uh, you know, don't you don't need those pesky politicians or governments or so-called environmental groups, again, who... You know, haven't really quite gotten it right yet, have they? I mean, because yeah, they're all at Earth Day events this weekend eating hot dogs. Or, you know, just like they were doing at the climate conference in Copenhagen, Das. All these politicians, you know, pretending to be aware. Uh, pretending to be aware, and yet we see them on TV, on camera, sitting there... Um, eating a bowl of cow's milk ice cream and telling us we need a green new deal when in reality what we need is a green new meal yes it's time to take it in our own hands you know with the food we eat and then we can save the world it's as simple as that so you know and you don't have to just believe me uh because on uh, today's Earth Day weekend super special episode of Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. We will be talking to, uh, well, I promise, a super fascinating interview with an Earth and environmental superhero. Um, you know, I mean, of course, uh, all vegans are uh, you know, Earth and environmental superheroes, but uh, he's a, a super duper superhero, Dr. Silesh Rao, who is the founder of Climate Healers and executive producer of Cowspiracy and What the Health, which are two of the most amazing and important documentaries ever executive produced by anyone. So I would say prepare for a mind-blowing education on the environment today with Dr. Silesh Rao, uh, this on our Special Earth Day weekend, super special, special episode. 
And you can be special too and make uh, every day Earth Day simply by going vegan. Okay, so this is actually the 51st Earth Day. Um, and, uh, you know, honestly, it doesn't seem to have helped much. Things don't seem to be improving. I mean, 51 years ago, I mean, maybe then we were, you know, concerned about some, uh, some cloud of smog above us there. And then along came climate change and deforestation and, you know, give lip service over the years to all of these water scarcity and pollution and soil erosion, desertification, acidification, uh, eutrophication, habitat destruction, mass extinction. Um, oh, and yes, all of these would be solved if we were all to go vegan. Yeah, definitely. But now, you know, just when... Um, you know, th 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 there's always something new added on to the problems. And, you know, just when sea creatures were uh, adjusting to a steady diet of discarded uh, Aquafina bottles, along come billions of plastic face, face masks, uh, uh, you know, dumped into the oceans. Uh, and by the way, shown in numerous studies, including... A, brand new one from Stanford University, to not be effective in preventing COVID, but, you know, also being potential health risks to us. So here again, just like uh, eating meat, dairy, fish, and eggs, it's not good for us, it's not good for the animals, it's not good for the environment, why do we do it? And now the same thing with the face masks, you know, so... Uh, which, uh, you know, are uh, unsafely limiting our oxygen, and then we're breathing in our own carbon dioxide, which really is meant, you know, for trees to breathe. So maybe, you know, take off the mask and, uh, you know, you'll breathe easier, and maybe the trees will breathe easier. The, 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 the trees are probably thinking like, you know, stop hugging me and just, you know, take off that mask. All right. So anyway, um, remember in, in Earth Days past when we were all up in arms uh, about Monsanto and GMOs and uh, a, a, a bit of selfish history right now, I might note. I was the first person ever arrested in California for protesting against GMOs many years ago. Uh, it's all a blur. I, I can't possibly say what year it was, but it was in San Diego. And I had the megaphone, which is usually the uh, cop magnet. Um, and my chant was, we don't want no potato engineered by Monsanto. Yeah, so I was charged with uh, not having a, a poetic license, you know, which, uh, you know. Just exercising my freedom of speech, uh, which right now some unexpected people seem to want to curtail these days. Because, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I joke about things, and uh, you know, then it turns out maybe not so funny. Maybe not so funny because too close to reality. 
Lately, I've been thinking, uh, you know, it used to be we were just concerned about fruits and vegetables being genetically modified organisms, you know, as mad scientists created GMO corn and soy and beets and whatever. Um, and now, though, with the new experimental biological agents being uh, sold to us as vaccines, it looks more and more to me like people are becoming GMOs. And uh, I don't know, is the attitude, you know, GMOs are everywhere. If you can't beat them, join it and become one. I don't know. Become one yourself. So I kind of joked on Facebook. Um, well, what I, what I said exactly on Facebook was, I'm quoting myself here. Quote, Bob Linden, quote from Bob Linden. After receiving your ouchie from Fauci, the unapproved experimental jab that literally modifies your genes, you may proudly officially classify yourself as a GMO. Congratulations. Let's celebrate. Shots of Roundup for everyone. Well, some people have no sense of humor. Hmm. So <laughs> the reaction from a lot of people, and he was like, I'm unfriending you. I'm reporting you for misinformation. You are stupid. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I did write a response uh, on Facebook. I, I don't even know. I haven't checked in a few days. Um, kind of lost my enthusiasm for Facebook and uh, Twitter because they... Uh, they're involved with so much censorship that now I'm concerned that, you know, whatever I, my response may have been uh, censored or my original not funny joke uh, may not be there. I, I don't even, I, I don't know, was my, I'll have to check to see if I'm still on Facebook. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just a joke, you know what I mean? I mean, I thought it was just a joke. Until I saw, saw this video by Dr. Kari Madej, M-A-D-E-J. Saw this video of Dr. Madej. And she was giving a, um, well, she was kind of giving a background on Moderna, which is one of the uh, vaccine manufacturers, saying that it was founded um, by Derek Rossi at Harvard University. Um, what he did... Uh, he, he, she said he proved you can genetically modify something by using genetically modified RNA. Well, as it turns out, the, uh, you know, the mRNA that's in the so-called vaccine is, uh, you know, genetically modified RNA. And what uh, Rossi did at Harvard was he modified, um, with modified RNA, he reprogrammed stem cells. So, well, maybe, uh, you know, we're very, very low, uh, low production value here, but I wonder if you can hear some of this video um, from Dr. Carrie Madej, M-A-D-E-J. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, but... Uh, let, let, let's see if, if you can hear what, what she said.
Oops. I'm sure you can't hear it yet. Let me see if I can get to around. Let's see here. Did I? Tiny needles. And this okay, was. Okay, uh, let me go a little further ahead here. Whoops, back a little. All right, let's just pick it up where. Um, anyway, in these tiny little spicules, they claim you won't really feel it that much. Okay, I want to go. You can see the low production values we have here, but uh, let me see if this is. Well, in this Band-Aid, it has little tiny Okay, I, I want to get past this needle. a little bit. Talk amongst yourselves for half a second. Viper fang bite, okay? Or snake viper bangs. Um, All right, not quite anyway, to the point I want to get yet. Why do I keep getting over there? Yeah. Okay, sorry, I apologize. But this, this can save your life, so it's worth... Uh, <laughs> worth it. I'm trying to get it right on the uh, screen here. So. Anyway, in these tiny little spicules, they claim you won't really feel it that uh, much. Well. There's uh, their little hydrogel. It's a material called hydrogel. I just can't uh, get it to jump to the right to the place where I want it to. Let's see. Is that right? Let me see here. I apologize. I apologize profusely. Let's see what happens now. Come on, play. Okay, so what is all that? So first of all, you're getting the vaccine. It's modified RNA or modified DNA. Let's take Moderna, modified RNA. So in that modified RNA, the idea is that it would the microneedles will puncture into your your cell membrane. Okay, and this synthetic piece of an RNA, it's a code for the part of the virus. Or they could use a synthetic DNA to code for the part of the virus would go into your nucleus. Your body would start transcribing it, would start reading it and making more of that part of the virus. Well, why would we want to make more of the virus or part of the virus? The idea is your body would get used to seeing it, would know how to make antibodies and would have an improved T cell response. And the idea is then when you saw it in the future, your body would already know how to fight it and it would be a better response. That's the idea. Um, the problem with that is they're using something called a process called transfection and transfection is a way that we make genetically modified organisms. Okay, I think you know about those fruits and vegetables. Uh, they're not as healthy as the normal uh, wild type fruit and vegetables. So possibly you could extrapolate that to a human. If we become genetically modified, we would not be as healthy, okay? We don't have long-term studies on this anyway. This is unbelievable. And, you know, the vaccine manufacturers have made the statement, this will not alter our DNA, our genome. I say that is not true. Because if we use this process to make a genetically modified organism, why would it not do the same thing to a human? I, I don't know why they're saying that. Now, if you look at the um, definition of transfection, it'll tell you that it can be a temporary change in the cell. And I think that's what the vaccine manufacturers are banking on. It's temporary. Or it's a possibility for it to become stable, to be taken up into the genome and so stable that it will start replicating when the genome replicates, meaning it is now a permanent part of your genome. That's a chance that we're taking. So it could be temporary or it could be permanent. And we would never know that for years down the road, honestly. So here we go. We've got something that can alter our genome. It's a possibility. 
And another thing on that, if they're altering the genome, what would be the effects? I told you previously some of the side effects, but also we need to know that this is a synthetic piece of DNA or RNA, okay? And if it becomes taken up into the genome of a human, it's synthetic, it's not from nature. And if you look at the Supreme Court justice ruling on synthetic DNA or genes, it can be patented and patents have owners. So what does that mean for us? What if this gets into our genome? Does that mean Moderna or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or the Department of Defense, all of these people who are involved in the patents or are they somehow going to own part of our genome? It's a possibility. You need to know that. So that's one part of this delivery system. Just one. Now let me go to the next. The next part of the delivery system is a luciferase enzyme. Well, okay. So we'll uh, we'll cut it there for now. Um, so it was a joke. Now I have to ask you: uh, Are you a GMO? Are you a GMO? Um, no, I'm. I don't know if uh, if that cut out a little bit while she was on or whatever, but anyway, so um, she was saying that uh, transfection is the way we make genetically modified organisms, and transfection is the problem is the uh, process by which this uh, synthetic RNA is being made. So. Um, uh, she says, if we become genetically modified, uh, we would not uh, be uh, be as healthy. And uh, she, it, it, the the vaccine makers are saying this will not alter our DNA uh, or our genome. And she says that that's not true. That uh, because if we uh, uh, use this uh this this process uh to make a genetically mod modified organism um oh i can't read it's uh, uh yeah, yeah. i'm sorry it's, i can't even read my own notes here uh, okay but uh, uh why would it not do the same to us Okay. All right. Now I can read my own scribble while I was listening. So, so the vaccine makers are saying this will not um, alter our DNA or genes. And she says, I say that's not true because uh, to make a genetically, uh, you know, to use this process, this transfection process uh, modifies other organi uh, organisms why would it not do the same to us? And we don't know if it will or not. It's not tested. All right. Anyway, um, you you get the you get the picture. Okay. Well, we're working on it here. What can I? What what can we do? <laughs> grassroots uh, grassroots nonprofit trying to put out some information that you can't get anywhere that could theoretically save your life uh, or at least uh, prevent you from becoming a GMO. Are you a GMO? Would you like to be? I wouldn't. 
I don't even, I don't want to eat any GMO foods. So anyway, it's Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. As I said, we have to, we have Dr. Silesh Rao coming up from uh, Climate Healers, and uh, he, uh, it's going to be fascinating. He was the executive producer of Cowspiracy and What the Health. I want to give a shout out to, um, well, to all the vegan restaurants who have managed to stay in business during this uh, scandemic, pandemic, uh, pandemic, whatever whatever we have going here. Please support your local vegan restaurants. Keep them in business. Do the takeout thing, or I don't know if you if, if you if you can dine in. You know, depending upon what stage of uh, dictatorial rules are in effect right now, whether it's takeout or you can dine in or whatever it is, please support your local 100% vegan restaurants. Let's keep them going. Shout out to Vegetarian House in San Jose, one of my favorites, 100% um, organic, non-GMO. Uh, I don't know, maybe maybe now when we say non-GMO, it, it means like people, like only, only the uh, non-GMO people can dine here. GMO people, you know, Outside, you know, with a mask, with a whole hazmat suit on, maybe, right? Can you believe it? It's come to that. People are becoming GMOs. Who would have thunk it when we were, we were protesting in those first days against Monsanto? We don't want no potato engineered by Monsanto. Shout out to Evolution Vegan Dog and Cat Food, which we greatly appreciate. Daisy loves it. She's been enjoying it for eight years now. She is happy and healthy, and Evolution has been in business. It's a family-owned business, been around around three decades now. No product recalls, vegan dog and cat food, suitable for all stages of your companion animals' lives and um just uh, check it out. Go to PetFoodShop.com, PetFoodShop.com. It's Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. As I said, this is our 20th anniversary. You can go, go to GoVeganRadio.com, and there are, oh, I don't know, about 650 archived programs um, that you can listen, that you can hear for free. And you can also make a donation. You can find that donation button at GoVeganRadio.com. Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden at GoVeganRadio.com. On Facebook, Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. And there are the multiple Bob Linden pages because I didn't know how to get started on Facebook when it started. So I'm all over the place there with multiple pages. And on Twitter, at Go Vegan Radio. And uh, it's our 20th anniversary of this program. And uh, we are uh, really... Uh, so uh, honored to uh, be a voice for the animals and the planet and human health. And uh, you can support our show. There is a donate button at GoVeganRadio.com. 
And it is our Earth Day weekend super spectacular today. And, uh, of course, what would be what would we be doing but uh, saluting the Earth and environmental superheroes of today, meaning vegans, right? They are the only ones who can save the planet and uh, stop climate crisis and, and extinction and save the animals and human health simply by eating. Pretty amazing, huh? And uh, why uh, I, myself, personally have saved uh, about 11 million gallons of water by being vegan for 37 years. Um, but enough about me. Uh, today we have uh, an earth and environmental super duper hero because not only is he vegan, but he is a true activist and educator and researcher for the cause. And, you know, by, by day, a mild-mannered systems specialist with a Ph.D. in electrical engineering from Stanford, a former director of communications for Intel Corporation, and distinguished member of the technical staff at ATT Bell Labs. But as a superhero, Dr. Silesh Rao is the founder and uh, executive director of Climate Healers in Phoenix, Arizona, and he is the author of two books, Carbon Dharma, The Occupation of Butterflies, and Carbon Yoga, The Vegan Metamorphosis. And he is an executive producer of two of the most important and wonderful documentaries I've ever seen, Cowspiracy, The Sustainability Secret, and What the Health, and a couple of other documentaries that I haven't seen, what the human experiment and a prayer for compassion. So uh, from what I'm reading here, uh, Dr. Silesh Rao, um, what, you and Al Gore started the Internet together? Is that correct? <laughs> no. <laughs> Thanks. No? No. <laughs> Did I get that wrong? I, 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 where, where am I wrong here? <laughs> Yeah, it was around a long time before we got involved. <laughs> well, but, but tell me, you know, it'll be interesting, you know, what, how you did transition and go from one life to the other. And, and it actually, what, what was it? You were a pioneer in Internet technology, right? What, what was it that involved you or your time? Or Yeah, well, when I joined the Internet Committee back in 95. Um, the Internet Committee? Yeah, we had a committee, the, the the engineers, you know, Electrical and Electronic Engineers Association. This the, in, the Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers um, had a um, working group on determining standards for how do you connect on the Internet. So basically, wow. you know, well, that's fascinating just to know that there was an Internet committee that met to. Well, I guess somebody had to plan it, right? It's not just exactly. magic. It just didn't happen on its own. So, yeah. So, okay. So, so tell us about the committee and what happened and all of that. So I joined the committee in uh, 95. That's when I started going to their meetings. Basically, the, this committee, any engineer, any electrical engineer can join. That's the way it is set up. And you're just volunteering your time to help the community figure out how best to communicate across wires or over fiber or whatever medium it is, 
right? Mm-hmm. How do you do it? And so when I joined in 95, um, all the connections were basically analog connections, you know, meaning you you send uh, data as analog signals and you pick it up at the other end, you know, you just... Was that in the day of like slow modems with all the crazy noises they no, used to make? And- was- this used to be, this was actually faster. So we were doing it on, they were doing 10 megabit and they were doing 100 megabits per second. So 10 megabit per second, they did it on uh, voice grade cables and then 100 megabit per second, they did it on uh, data grade cables. In fact, the 10 megabit standard was the one that really made the IEEE committee um, famous because it made uh, communications on the internet relatively robust. And so people said, wow, you know, and this this works. So so we, they sold like tens of millions of these units. Wow. And uh, then and, we, and, and isn't it amazing a, a bunch of scientists get together and they go, wow, it works? <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Reminds me of my school See, science fair back in uh, New York when it's like, oh, we mix the ingredients. They work. This is incredible. <laughs> Yeah, see, this is a, a the 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 way it was set up. Uh, basically, the committee's work is designed in a way that uh, the, what the committee comes up with is more intelligent than what any one individual could have done on their own. Mm. So this is called collective intelligence, right? So you make the collective much much smarter than each individual. And how do you organize yourself to do that? And that's what the Internet Committee was all about, you know. Um, so they had protocols in place, in a methodology in place, so that when people come together and uh, and work together, they're able to contribute their best, and thereby make the whole much better than what each one could have done on their own. Oh, kind of the opposite of uh, governing by committee. Exactly, <laughs> kind of the opposite of what we do today in governance, <laughs> because in governance today. Everybody knows that animal agriculture is causing pandemics, is causing destruction on the planet, et cetera, et cetera. But the collective, the government, doesn't want to even talk about it. And I'm mm-hmm. looking at them and saying, what the heck is wrong with these people? Oh, right. You know, and then to actually talk about uh, climate crisis, but, but never to recognize the, the answer when it's really been out there and published. And, you know, I mean, if, if I could find it, uh, they they can find it, you know. I mean, exactly. And, yeah. uh, you know, actually, um, I I had a pretty interesting. Well, I I wanted to get into the the timeline of looking at animal agriculture and all, but I also mm. wanted to hear how you, you know, I wanted to stay with uh, you and the electronics and oh, and and what did what did you contribute to the committee? Did you have an idea that uh, in particular that was uh, got you a good grade? Yeah, basically what I did was uh, uh, convert a analog communications infrastructure to a digital version. So what that meant was uh, uh, they were sending just one bit per signal, so to speak, right? So so at the other end, you just, is it a one or a zero? That's all you have to make a decision on. Right? And, <laughs> is and that that's still really all it is, is zeros and ones? Is that what... That's- <laughs> That's what they were doing, and I said, "Wait a minute, guys! You can do, you can be smarter than that, you know." So let's figure out how to use this cable to send uh, digital versions of it. So that's my contribution. I created a, a, a digital signal processing version of it that ran ten times faster. 
And then when it happened, did you say, I, I can't believe it, it works? <laughs> exactly. They, they all said, what are you talking about? This is complicated. <laughs> you'll believe it when we say it kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, they were surprised, and, and and everyone was surprised when it actually started working. So, so that affected the speed of communication on the internet? Like that was yeah. like, yeah? yeah? It made it go 10 times faster and made it robust on the same cable. Mm-hmm. Is so, it still that same um, speed, or is there a committee? That, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> there was wow. a committee that wanted to do 10 times faster than that, you know, at 10 gigabit per second. And uh, that standard... Um, uh, it became a standard, but it wasn't very successful because ah. it wasn't very robust. Well, so uh, we all uh, owe you a debt of gratitude for helping us uh, communi- communicate more quickly and be, <laughs> and be overloaded with more communication all the time because of it, probably. So um, and so how did you so so you were with uh, Intel and you were at uh, Bell Labs and so when did uh, when did veganism strike? When did uh, uh-huh. <laughs> well, it was uh, in 2005. I was working on uh, 10 gigabit Ethernet, and I was not very uh, I was not very excited about it at that time because it was a mess, and I thought it was not going to work. And and so I came home one day and I sat down on my couch and I turned on my TV and there was Al Gore talking about climate change. And he was giving his Inconvenient Truth presentation to uh, activists in San Francisco. And someone had videotaped it and put it on TV. So I was rooted to that. And I was watching it and I was telling my wife, if half of what he's saying is true, everybody should be working on this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the the entire planet is dying and people are just going about their own business. And so, uh, so she told me, if you think it's that important, why don't you go study it? So that's what I did. And within a couple of months, you know, I'd say by three months or so, I went back to her and I told her it's far worse. And I really need to focus on this full time. She said, OK, if that's what you want to do, go for it. And ah, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I have an amazing family. OK, so, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah. closed down our company. And, oh, you, cl- you closed down your company, you said? Yeah, I closed down our company and uh, and. Uh, I wrote to Mr. Gore and I said, how can I help you? Uh, I didn't hear back from him for six months. And then six months later, I got a letter saying, would you like to get trained by Mr. Gore? And I said, sure. So I I went in, I think it was November of 2006 that I got trained uh, to give his presentation. Uh, But even during the training, I asked him a question about uh, animal agriculture. So I asked him, you know, if we take all the land that we are using for grazing these animals and return them back to the forest that used to be there, can we not reverse climate change? I mean, to me, it was a simple calculation. Basically, you know, you, at that point, there was a, a report from the UNFAO, uh, Food and Agriculture Organization, saying that one third of the land area of the planet was used to just graze animals. And so... Uh, and, uh, and I know that grazing land doesn't store much carbon. And I also know that land stores three times as much carbon as the atmosphere. So I was just doing back of the envelope calculations. And I'm saying, wait a minute. <laughs> this is not that hard. 
<laughs> yeah, that that was a little too inconvenient of a truth for Al Gore, though, right? So, and I think I think his family is in the livestock business, right? So, well, uh, what happened was during the uh, uh, training, at you know, you are allowed to ask questions, and I asked him that question. I asked him, if we return the forest back on the land that we are using for grazing, can we not reverse climate change? And he turned to Roy Neal, his chief of staff, and he said. How did this guy get in here? <laughs> uh, you and I have similar lives, like I tell you. <laughs> See, he didn't want to answer. He didn't want to answer it. Yeah. So then, of course, you know, uh, I kind of started persisting on it, and and he was not very happy with me. So um, I sent him a letter. I actually got a whole bunch of my colleagues to co-sign a letter, and I sent it to him in 2009, I think. August of 2009, and he sent back a reply, basically saying, you know, it's not as bad as you think. We need to focus on one message. We need to... so anyway, and he told us to focus on giving his presentation. I said, okay, fine, I'll do that. But then I, start, I had started Climate Healers by 2007 because I I knew that I wanted to address climate change holistically. You know, look at all the issues as opposed to just focusing on how you can make money off of it. <laughs> right. Oh, exactly. That, that's what it is. That's the, the whole, that's the corruption of the, the climate movement and, and the animal rights movement, whatever. It's like, how can they make money uh, while continuing to ignore the main factor that pretty much solves everything? You know, right. I mean, when people hear about the role of animal agriculture in the environment, they are so often shocked that, you know, I mean, so, and it, it, it almost seems, you know, it almost seems too wild a, a thought. But so I, I wanted to go over this chronology that I have with, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing this radio show now for 20 years. And uh, the purpose of the show is, it's, is to try to convince everybody to go vegan with whatever ammunition I might have. And... Mm -hmm. um, you know, it used to be, you know, as a street activist, I'd have my megaphone and be, you know, doing some talking and, you know, people would say, oh, get a life, you get out of here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, with a background in radio, so I was able to start a talk show uh, initially on KRLA in Los Angeles and then went, went on to other places and networks and everything. But... There just seemed to be more credibility. So the same thing that I would say in the megaphone on the street where people would say, get a life. Uh, if I do it on the radio, they go, hey, did you hear what the guy on the radio said? You know, it's like, <laughs> almost like this um, credibility, you know, so uh, that's kind of interesting. Oh, 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 and just because you mentioned how you, Al Gore was unhappy with you, um, I, just, I just remembered there was a kind of a conference of green festivals, you know, supposedly environmental festivals. And a friend dragged me off uh, to be there. And then there was a question and answer period. Um, and I, too, I, I got up and I said, well, if your festivals are all supposed to be green and environmental, how come you serve any, you know, meat, dairy, fish and eggs? And they couldn't answer it either for for them it was the same thing like how did this guy get in here yeah. you know so yeah. um you know so often they you know they don't want to face the issue so 
doing this this radio show going along to I believe it was around 2006. And by the way, I I think you have your your white paper animal agriculture is the leading cause of climate change is brilliant and everybody has to read that and see it and and in it you have a chronology that kind of uh, mat- matches my path a little along here like in 2006 uh, there was the release of Livestock's Long Shadow by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN. And when that came out, it said, oh, um, animal agriculture is responsible for 18% of human-generated greenhouse gas emissions. And I was all excited because 18% added up to more than all transportation combined, all cars, boats, trains, planes, so I thought, wow, we really have something here. I I have a selling point to go vegan, okay? So so there's that. So that was 15 years ago uh, when I was touting uh, what the FAO was saying, not knowing, well, I, I was told later by, you know, well, what happened then um, in uh, 2009 uh, was uh, the report from, uh, Robert Goodland and Jeff Anhang at the World Bank, um, and theirs was, uh, what was it, Livestock and Climate Change. And in that, um, they said, no, it's not 18%. They uh, they uh, used you know, the wrong, outdated numbers, and they omitted this information, and, right. and it's actually uh, at least 51% of all human-generated greenhouse gas emissions. And I'm thinking... This is like the greatest information I could ever have. Now I can convince everybody to go vegan because it's more than everything else combined. Nothing else combined can add up to 51%. And they're not just saying 51%. They're saying at least 51%. And it was from them because I uh, did a lot of studying with Jeff Anhang and Robert Goodland and uh, understood, you know, come to understand some some of what they were saying and uh you know they they were saying that uh yeah animal agriculture is the number one cause of climate change and that uh, only a massive population shift uh uh to vegan can really reverse it and bring us to pre-industrial carbon levels so oh but it was also from jeff anhang that i learned that the food and agriculture organization the fao is part of the livestock industry so that that report would be somewhat tainted by the way the humane society of the united states or humane society international is also part of that uh association with the fao and the livestock industry for increased demand for animal products um but what's shocking to me is so goodland and anhang say okay, it's at least 51%. And then you come along with your white paper, animal agriculture is the leading cause of climate change. And you say it's 87%. Right. Okay. Well, that's like the be- even better information for me to convince everyone. But I'd, can you take us through, well, take us through that white paper if you can, or the ideas behind it and how how you can come to such a calculation because you know, people thought uh, it was crazy when it was 18% more than all transportation and then 51% more than everything else combined. And then you come up with 
87%. Oh, and, and by the way, there was one interesting point that was made even in Livestock's Long Shadow, the flawed, debunked 2006 FAO uh, report. Um, little noticed, it, it said something there that, like, land cultivation is responsible for more carbon emissions than the entire fossil fuel industry. Right. And, and that was another curious point, like, what's going mm. on here? So... Um, you've done a lot of research and, you know, I mean, let us know what you know in all of this. I think it's really. <laughs> yeah. So you hit upon it. You know, basically, uh, we have been cutting down forests for animal agriculture for 10,000 years. Okay. Whereas uh, fossil fuels, we've been burning for just 200 years. So, and. Yeah, we are burning a lot of fossil fuels every year, but climate change is caused by cumulative emissions. Whatever you have done over the last, you know, throughout your, throughout the last ten thousand years, you have to add it all up. So when you add it all up, it turns out that the amount of carbon we have emitted from through deforestation exceeds the amount of carbon we have emitted through fossil fuels. Okay, first thing. No, Second thing. Now, I, I never hear that anywhere. That's that's a very it's, important point, isn't it? You know, I mean, sometimes I feel like I get repetitive on the show because people don't hear this anywhere else, you know, but right. make that point again, because uh, now with the little asterisk here, it's like this is dramatic, right? I mean, yeah, basically, uh, and it's it's a there's a scientific there are scientific papers on this showing that the amount of carbon we've emitted from land use changes over the last 10,000 years is 50% more than the amount of carbon we've emitted from fossil fuels over the last 250 years. So uh, fundamentally, if you look at the, the number of trees on the planet, okay? So the number of trees on the planet right now, we have about 3 trillion trees. But 10,000 years ago, there were 6 trillion trees. So we cut half the trees on the planet, okay? And each tree holds about a ton of CO2 because a tree is, is carbon that used to be in the atmosphere that's being sequestered by the tree. That's how the tree grows. It takes CO2 from the atmosphere and puts it in its trunk. And so every tree will store a ton of CO2. That's amazing. That, I'm, that, that's amazing. Wow. So three trillion trees will store three trillion tons of CO2. Well, how many tons of CO2 have we put into the atmosphere since the industrial era began? Maybe at most at one trillion tons. So fundamentally, we can reverse climate change by bringing back the forest that we cut. We know that. Okay, We can literally reverse climate change. If you say, well, you know, we have messed up the land so much that no tree will ever grow there, you know, and you, so on and so forth, then why are we even going to Mars? If you can't even bring back a tree here on Earth, <laughs> well, you think you can really grow things on Mars? So that's my problem, you know, and, and people have shown that we can grow trees. We can bring back the forest. Uh, they've taken bare land, you know, land that looks like desert and turned that back into forest. Why? How? By just uh, creating these structures that store water. So it's fundamentally about restoring the water cycle of the planet. Okay, so you store the water and then start planting the native trees in that region and it comes back. 
And then because most of the time the seeds are still in the soil, still in the ground. And so it's ready to be woken up. The, the beauty of life, life is so resilient that uh, it's very hard for us to kill it completely. You know what I mean? No so, matter how hard we try. No matter how hard we try. We are trying really hard, but no, you can't. So this is why I say, just just look at the numbers. You know, three trillion trees have been cut for mainly for animal agriculture. And every year we are cutting more and more trees to grow more and more cows. And I say, are you crazy? Yeah, <laughs> we well, should be are. doing the opposite. Of course, of course. yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's too sensible. You know, it's like yeah, we we always do the opposite of what's sensible. You know, so and then the other thing is how much land. Uh, animal agriculture occupies. So, um, you know, I've had uh, uh, Joseph Poor on this show, and he did a very interesting study out of Oxford University. Mm-hmm. And so his estimate was that um, if, uh, if we were to transform to a vegan human population, we would free land uh, the size of Africa for mm-hmm. uh, reforestation and species recovery. So what do you, what do you think in those terms? Yeah, actually, it's it's more like uh, almost double the size of Africa is what you restore, according to the IPCC. So the IPCC is saying that 37% of the land area of the planet is used to graze animals today. Now, they've broken that up into two. They've broken that up into extensive grazing land and grazing land. I think Joseph Poor is only counting the extensive grazing land. He's not counting the other land. But you know there aren't there aren't too many wild animals running around grazing anymore because our farmed animals have just overrun. I mean they're just vastly bigger in terms of biomass than all the wild animals put together. So they're doing all the grazing, and so 37% of the land area of the planet is being used to graze uh, our farmed animals, and all that land can be returned back to original forests if we. Uh, if you just go vegan. Because if you look at the, the amount of food we eat, right? So we eat about 1.6 billion tons of food. Now, 85% of that already comes from plants. So we're already eating a plant-rich diet worldwide, okay? You may not know it looking at people what people eat in the U.S. Because U.S., you know, people are eating, they're gorging on it. They're gorging on animal foods. But the rest of the world is not doing that kind of gorging. So if you look at the average, 85% of the food is already plant-based. 12% is from land animals. And 3% is from the ocean okay, and from fishes. So for 85% of the food, which is plant food, we are, we are getting that from about 6% of the land area of the planet. So roughly half of the cropland output is going to feed people directly. Actually, it's roughly one quarter. So let's say 6% of the land area of the planet is providing 85% of the food we eat. And then 43% of the land area of the planet is providing just 12% of the food we eat. And that's the animal foods. And then for 3% of the food we eat, we are destroying the entire ocean. That's the crazy part, right? So if we just went vegan, that 100% of the and 100% of the food is plant-based, we would be using less than 10% of the land area of the planet for our food. And the rest of the land we can return back to nature. And the ocean we can return back to nature. 
so that the whales and the fishes can have their, their habitat and the wild animals can have their habitat. And when they have their habitat, they will come back. So it's and, it's and of big, course, huh? animal agriculture or, you know, eating meat, dairy, fish and eggs is, uh, you know, the main cause of loss of habitat, which leads us to extinction. So, you know, going vegan seems to solve you know, just about every environmental challenge, whether it's uh, deforestation, resource depletion, water scarcity, but, you know, people are concerned about extinction. Well, you know, the very source of extinction is habitat destruction and, you know, everything's getting cut down uh, to grow either GMO, soy and corn or graze animals, right? Right, right. Um, Now, have have you heard much about you know there's this uh, latest fad because they always want to get you to eat animal products so it's regenerative um, agriculture we're yeah. being we're being sold on grazing as being environmentally responsible and have you looked at that at all or well it's a, it's a scam <laughs> it's, a, it's a I mean uh, I don't know any other way to put it it's a scam <laughs> so fundamentally what they're saying is so what happens today is uh, you cut down forests and you turn that into grazing land. And guess what happens? Every year the forest is trying to come back, right? So the forest is growing all these plants and trees and then the animals are eating whatever they can eat. And then what do, what do you do with the rest? So every year they chop the rest and burn it. This is called pasture maintenance fires, okay? So they set fires to maintain the pastures. And so this way, they are trying to maximize uh, growing what our animals eat and minimize what our animals don't eat. So what the regenerative grazing people are saying is, okay, 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 we won't cut down. <laughs> we, we won't cut down the plants and do pasture maintenance fires anymore. So we let the wild, and wild plants grow. Then what happens? You need more land to get the same amount of food for your animals. Yeah, I, I see. people say like they, they think grass-fed beef is a solution, environmental solution, right? Grass-fed beef, well, how, how much land is there for to provide grass-fed beef to people? See, the, the numbers don't lie. You know, this is why I say, look at the numbers. 85% of our food is coming from just 6% of the land for plant-based foods. 12% of the food is coming from 43% of the land for animal-based foods. Now, if you go and say, I have a different way of raising animals that requires more land for the animals, I say, wait a minute, you know, excuse me. Yeah. What in the heck are you doing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, as an engineer, okay, if someone came to me and said, this is my engineering solution, I would throw him out of my office right away, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So it yeah. doesn't take much time to figure w- this out. wouldn't make it to that committee for sure, right? Absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, so, so as I recall in my the, the statistics from uh, my discussion with Joseph Poor, I think he said that we could reduce farmland by seventy-five percent, pretty much, meaning ag- animal agriculture, and right. still feed the whole human population with the remaining twenty-five percent. Does that sound? Yeah. See, uh, but he's as I said, he's not counting a certain portion of the grazing land, uh, right, in his calculations. So if I look at his numbers and match it with what the IPCC is saying, um, his numbers are, uh, he starts off with a much smaller set of numbers. So anyway, um, in in that situation, what he's saying is that uh, we can actually feed uh, people with plant-based foods 
on about 9% of the land area of the planet. That's according to his calculations. And I agree with that. Mm. He's right. So which would leave, you know, 43% of the land uh, open for us to bring back the forest. And that is, see, right now, uh, only 9% of the original forests are there. Okay? The, the We count forests as wherever there are trees, it's a forest, right? <laughs> so they have this method of counting, which is based on just saying, what is the, what is the tree cover in a, in a certain Central grid? Park is a forest, right? Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and so they just count a one, one mile by one mile area and see how many trees there are. And if the, I think if the tree count is greater than 10%, tree cover is greater than 10%, they mark it as a forest. And so 33, I mean, 31% of the land area of the planet is currently forested, according to official statistics from the UN. But of that, most of it is actually plantations. These are plantations that we planted in order to make pay, toilet paper and all kinds of nonsense, right? So mm -hmm. this is our stuff. It's really not what wild animals like. I mean, I've gone to forests in India where they say the forest is being maintained by the forest officers. And I look in there and it's full of plantations, teak plantations, because it's good for our lumber, right? And, and the, the elephants, they can't live there. But there's nothing for them to eat. So that's, so that's corruption of numbers again, right? Exactly. There, right? Exactly. So, so really, you know, this is why wild animals are down by more than 90% from what they used to be 10,000 years ago. So uh, this, is, this is why I say the world is going to be vegan by 2026, whether we like it or not. Well, we like it, though. We do like of it. Of course we like it. I mean, we like it. You and I like it. We have the best food. Like Come on. It. We have the best food. So, you know. <laughs> I know. I hear you. <laughs> I mean, see, for us as a species, for us, it's a matter of just eating this instead of that, wearing this instead of that. It really doesn't change us that much. So we are just, I mean, we are, in fact, we get healthier. We actually get better Okay, when we, when we go vegan. For the animals, it's a matter of life and death. Okay? It's a matter of extinction or no extinction. Well, and pain and suffering and imprisonment and torture. I mean, it's just exactly. uh, so horrible, you know. And, so horrible. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I mean, I, I appreciate, I think that you say that, you know, cruelty is not sustainable, really, right? right. I mean, uh -huh. uh, so you, you have a lot of concern about animals, too, in all of this. Absolutely. I mean, I'd say that uh, we depend on the animals. Let's not forget that. We depend on the wild animals for our own survival. Because I cannot imagine an ecosystem with just human beings and cockroaches. Mm. It doesn't work. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, so we're going to be eating each other if we ever get to that point. So yeah. we really need the wild animals. We need the trees. We need the plants. We need life to thrive on this planet. We can't just kill, kill, kill and expect life to thrive. It's not going to do that. So we're, right. we're getting really good at killing. Okay, so our killing and and you are what you eat and it's so violent. So, you know, it's like no wonder there's so much violence in the world. It's our diet. You know, we, it's our, yeah. our nutrition is violence. 
Yeah, it's also, you see, fundamentally, it's because of the way we create money. The, the way we create money, the architecture of money, and the way we value things makes us do these things. So it's really, you know, changing the rules of the game, you will solve all our problems, okay, fundamentally. So, so, so well, this we'll is what talk I... talk about that a little bit, what you're saying here now about money. Yeah. What, what uh, you see, I'm a systems engineer, right? So I look at systems. I try to understand systems and why certain behaviors happen. And you look at the foundations for why certain behaviors happen, certain things happen, and you discover that there are uh, axioms, you know, there are certain foundations that you build things on and that cause us to behave like this. Okay, so it's not people's fault. It's the system that you're in that's causing it to do that. It's the rules of the game. And so the rules of the game in, in the current economic system is that you value something highly if it is rare. So if you so if gold is valued highly, right? Because it's rare. Or platinum is valued highly because it's rare. So then what do you do is when, when you have something that is abundant, it's worthless. Right? Because if if there's plenty of it, if you could go grab it from the street, why would you pay for it? No one will pay for it, right? So when when water is clean everywhere, water is valueless. When trees are plentiful everywhere and there are fruits and berries everywhere, no one's going to buy. Go to the supermarket and buy fruits or berries. So you have to make things scarce in order to value it. Mm-hmm. So we are basically wishing for scarcity from nature. We're saying, can we, can we have some scarcity, please? And nature will say, yeah, I'll give it to you. <laughs> so, so we are deliberately... So it's our system that deliberately pollutes. It pollutes the water so that people can make money off of clean water. It pollutes the air so that people can make money off of clean air. So we 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 have created a system in which there is an incentive to pollute in order to create value. Hmm. Right? So think about that. Because that's how you set it up. And if the rules are set up this way, why are you shocked that, you know, that... Well, I mean, I I thought it it, it would be more like um, we pollute because, you know, there are no repercussions and, you know, we're not penalized and we can produce this product. And, you know, who cares? There won't be a fine. And if there is a fine, it'll be like a penny, you know, to the the corporation. So... So we pollute because there is no regulation against, but leave that aside. So we have this, we begin with an attitude that nature is just a bunch of objects that's there for us to exploit. Okay. And anything, so so we have this axiom of supremacism. I call it an axiom of supremacism, which is that life is a competitive game in which those who have gained an advantage may possess, enslave, and exploit animals, nature, and the disadvantaged mm-hmm. for our pursuit of happiness. Okay? Mm-hmm. This is what I call the, the axiom of supremacism. So yeah, well, I, I've, I've often I, mentioned human supremacy when it comes to animals, yeah. right? I mean, that's... It's a, not just human supremacy. It's also white supremacy, male supremacy. All, they are all built into this axiom. So meaning, if I have an advantage because I was born rich, 
or if I was born with a with an advantage, I am entitled to use that advantage and trample on people who don't have that advantage. That's the way the system is set up. Right. Yeah, well, the, the system is set up to oppress the weaker or perceived exactly. weaker. Yeah, oppress the weaker, and obviously the animals are the weakest, so we yeah. can oppress them. Yeah. So we have this axiom of supremacism that is kind of built into our system. And so we see that all around us. When you see a slaughterhouse, you're looking at the axiom of supremacism. Being well, when you go into the supermarket and, and people are just casually looking at all these body parts lying around right. everywhere, deciding, oh, that one looks delicious. I don't know. I, 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 I see human supremacy right there. And I, exactly. I also I can't understand why people don't see things differently or that. You know, by now, people, when they're chewing on something in their mouth, they don't go, oh, my God, it's it's, it's a chicken wing or, you know, whatever it might be should, should be so shocking and repulsive. That's what I don't understand. I think, you know, the brainwashing that goes into, you know, making us eat what's so repulsive is, is, is amazing, actually. Yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of lied to as children. So we are lied to, we are told. Like that's what I, you know, that's what I discovered about myself. I was lied to in my textbooks that you need to eat meat or some animal product in order to get protein. So either meat or cheese or dairy. So you can't go without any animal product. Then you're going to just have protein deficiency. You're going to die off, right? Right, that protein and, deficiency that, you know, I, I don't see vegans crawling through the streets going, yeah, protein, give me protein. It, it just doesn't doesn't seem to happen, you know. But th the whole thing is, even before you get to the textbooks, it's all, I don't know, it's just all so acceptable. In, in my public school, PS 152 Manhattan, every day they brought in a little container of cow's milk and cookies. And it's like, yeah. OK, little human kids. Drink the milk of a cow. It's normal. Why, why right. is that even normal? Why Why wasn't I drinking squirrel milk or cat milk? Why Why was that the normal? One? You know, I mean, it, it's all so normalized. And right. you know, I just you know, my my mother would make me a tongue sandwich for lunch in my lunchbox, and I eat it, and I don't think like I'm eating someone's tongue. Mom, what are you doing to me? You right. know, I, you know, it's just God. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's eating animal body parts and. Right. Nobody's questioning it, you know, and and that's, you know, eventually, you know, uh, I got to age 19, Queens College in New York and cooking Friday nights. Friends came over every Friday night and I was cooking a, a chicken dish um, like I did every week. But usually it was chicken cutlets, round, nondescript food. And that week it was the leg, the thigh, the body part. And I said, I'm eating somebody's body. I, I don't think I can eat animals anymore. You know, and everybody looked at me like, what's wrong with you? You know, like, what? You're crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, we are colonized. When we, we are colonized with animal foods. Because mm. basically animal foods are humans colonizing the bodies of animals. Right? Using the bodies of animals for our pleasure. As opposed to, you know, telling the animals... Hey, you own your body. <laughs> mm -hmm. Instead of colonizing the bodies of animals, so that's what animal foods are doing. And but the animal agriculture industry is using these bodies of animals and and their body parts to colonize us. Mm -hmm. 
Because what are they doing to our bodies? They're trying to turn us into customers for the pharmaceutical industries. All right, for the hospital bed. The- exactly. So so it, it's, a, it's a system that is colonizing all of our bodies in order to make profit. So it doesn't seem to have our, our best interests at heart here. Uh, it you're never, saying. never did, right? It always is uh, the self-interest of someone, right? So, and that too, corporations, uh, they are, they are, so we have designed these corporations. We have actually created regulations and rules for how to uh, how corporations should behave that are fundamentally psychopathic. So we have we we have agreed to it. So we know that there are psychopathic laws. I agree so easily. It's like, you're not saying anything strange to me. I I get what you're saying. Yeah. 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 The system is fundamentally psychopathic, right? So So then we shouldn't be shocked that the the corporations act like psychopaths. Because they are. They're meant to act like psychopaths. So we have created a system in which there are these mindless psychopaths with lots of power running around, running uh, basically... uh, running an ecological Ponzi scheme. So the ecological Ponzi scheme is to liquidate the capital of the planet, liquidate the natural wealth of the planet, and distribute it as short-term income to the corporations, to the psychopaths, Mm -hmm. and to whoever owns those corporations. So there are really very few people who truly own the corporations. You know, if you you look at um, all the, the... voting shareholders of the corporations, of all the major corporations, you will see the same for financial holding companies. Mm-hmm. Fidelity, Vanguard, State Street, and BlackRock. And if you go look for who owns these four financial holding companies, you'll discover that they are all private holding companies who don't have to disclose their shareholders. So it's a secret as to who is really running the planet. Mm-hmm. And so... We have been given this facade okay, of, of going and voting and participating in a democratic process. It's a facade. In reality, the power never, you never really had the power. The power belongs to these, these psychopathic corporations and the people who are running it. Okay? And, uh, so that's, that, so, and they're running an ecological Ponzi scheme. And so they don't even listen to us when we say, hey, dude, you're, you know, you're destroying the planet. You're doing something absolutely stupid like killing everything off uh, when you could have done this instead. So from an engineering perspective, uh, we have some of the most incompetent, it's the most incompetent civilization you could have built. It's incompetent in how uh, how it produces food. It's incompetent in how it produces energy. I mean, it is incompetent in every way possible. I mean, if we run a spacecraft like the way we run Spaceship Earth, the spacecraft will never even get off the ground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's that incompetent. So, sure. so, so, uh, what's the solution? We all go vegan. It creates a vegan economy, and you know, it uh, kind of yeah. undermines the the powers that be. Oh no! See, the solution is we all have to uh, the vegans, those who have already gone vegan. It's not you don't have to wait until everybody goes vegan. It's it those who have already gone vegan have a responsibility to create a new system that's based on fostering abundance. So a new system in which people lead their ordinary lives and the planet must thrive. 
And I say, you know, it's not hard to build a system like that. In fact, the, what I did with the with the Internet Committee was one of those systems, right? Meaning, the Internet Committee itself was a system that took everyone's input and turned it into something that was much better than what each person could have come out on their own. So we have to have a system that taps into the collective intelligence of humanity in order to make good decisions. Right now, we have a system that actually taps into the collective stupidity. <laughs> no, seriously. Well, that's I know, but, designed. you know, <laughs> I'm with you. That's how you have designed it. And you look at you look at it and you say, what the heck are they doing? <laughs> yeah. You know, look at the decisions of our governments, right? Sure. We had a pandemic, pandemic caused by animal agriculture. And then in May of last year, President Trump issues an executive order declaring slaughterhouses to be critical infrastructure. And everybody is saying, yeah, 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 critical infrastructure. What the heck? Yeah. Right? So so they are protecting that uh, the root cause of the pandemic. They are making sure that the new pandemic will show up. Yeah. If, right? if it didn't start in a laboratory, I'm just saying, just if, in case the virus wasn't somehow... It doesn't matter. In a lab, I know that we we thought it was bat soup. Now, and and that certainly sounded very tempting. A nice bowl of bat soup sounded as delicious uh, and tempting as chicken soup. Uh, you know, pouring hot water over an animal's body. But okay, well, I'm not sure. I just say, <laughs> Bob, it doesn't matter. Okay, it doesn't matter. All we we know that when animals are crammed together mm -hmm. and tortured. There are going to be viruses multiplying. Yes, we know that. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's well-known science. Many cases in history. Many, many. That. It's well-known science. We even understand the mechanism by which yeah. that happens. Bird flu, when, swine flu, you know all the. You right. name it, right? Yeah. But mm -hmm. we also understand the mechanism, meaning when an animal is terrorized, its immune system is going to say, "Mayday, mayday!" You know, sure. I'm about to die. So focus on survival. And so when the animal's immune system is focused on survival, the viruses are going to multiply in the animal's bodies. So that's why we keep feeding the animals antibiotics and, and all these things so that they, they live, <laughs> exist, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Until they're slaughtered. And so these antibodies, we keep feeding them, the animals, these antibody, I mean, antibiotics, the viruses are going to become more and more like superbugs. Right. So, so you, so if you wanted to create a superbug pandemic, you would start factory farms and slaughterhouses. Yeah. That's the animal, animal agriculture, like it's the exactly. source of source of all evil. You know, I mean, it's really, uh, yeah. It's perfectly designed. It's perfectly engineered to create superbug pandemics. Okay, it's perfectly engineered for that purpose. So, so that which is, then, so, which is then advantageous to the pharmaceutical industries because then they can produce uh, vaccines and uh, make right. a lot of money then too. Right. So that's but that's a system we have, right? So a system right. that that never really addresses the root cause of problems. It's only trying to make money off of the symptoms. This is not a new thing okay, that we are discovering. This is something that Gandhi wrote about a hundred years ago. More than 100 years ago, in 1909, he wrote a book called uh, Hinswaraj, 
in which he, he, he said Western civilization is based on this idea that you don't have to address root cause at all, just keep patching up the symptoms and you make money off the symptoms. And so he was telling Indians at that point, we don't have to adopt Western methods. We can stick with what we know, <laughs> which is because in India, we always address the root cause of problems, right? <laughs> That's how we have bought, our culture is based on that. Oh, really? So, yeah. <laughs> hmm. So he, you should read his book, actually. He wrote about this and his book got banned by the British government because it was considered to be, you know. <laughs> you got, you got to love that censorship. Uh, so what was the name of the book again? Hind Swaraj. Mm-hmm. Hind Swaraj. Um, okay. so, so you're saying that's part of Indian culture is to look at things at the root cause? I mean, Yeah, absolutely. If you look at Indian medicine, it's addressing the root cause. If you look at Indian legal system, it's addressing the root cause. So the purpose of a lawyer in India, a vakil we call him, is to resolve disputes. So here, the purpose of a lawyer is to enhance disputes because they can make money out of it. <laughs> right? <Yeah>. So <laughs> it's the opposite. So, and he pointed out that this way of living is not sustainable. He said this, you know, like um, 110 years ago, 1909. And his book, his book got banned by the British and that's how he became famous. Because and then you, you also said the, the root cause of medicine, you said? was. Uh... Yeah, he said the way Western medicine works, they never address the root cause. They just um, look at the symptoms and try to patch up the symptoms. Whereas in Indian medicine, Ayurveda, they're constantly trying to balance you out so that they're addressing the root cause. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so they're saying, okay, you have less of this, more of that, and therefore we need to eat more of this. In order to um, in order to balance yourself, mm-hmm. Makes so sense. Uh, and so the idea behind Indian medicine is to make sure that the patient doesn't have to come back to you. <laughs> that is the idea behind Western medicine is to make sure that the patient keeps coming back. To you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because you need to make more money off of the patient, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So what the, the, the Indian doctors or they don't want to get paid that often or uh, like they're not. Uh... In, you know, in India, the system was not like this at all. The way the way it was um, until the until India got colonized by the British uh, was that people really never really paid for food. No, no one really paid for food. You just went to your neighbor and ate if you didn't have any food in your home. Mm-hmm. So because every guest was treated as if it was he was God or she was God. So. We had that culture of um, of a guest being treated as 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 a as a god, and so no one was ever turned away. If you had something, you gave it to your guest first before you ate yourself. That was the culture. So this made sure that people actually were fed, and if you are basically fed, you don't have to worry about other things. It eliminates right? a lot of problems. Definitely. It eliminates a lot of problems because. Yeah. Shelter, you know, you just take a bunch of twigs and put together a house. What's the big deal? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, would... that, that's why I, I wonder how, you know, every city, you know, government doesn't just focus on, okay, the basics are let's get everybody fed and right. then we'll, we'll work from there, right? Exactly. That's why, I, you know, feeding people is a revolutionary act. So if you can get healthy vegan food to every human being on the planet, you will topple the system. Mm-hmm. 
So that's that's uh, uh, the idea behind food. Now, I, I know some organizations that are, work toward that, like Food for Life Global and right. Feedome. And uh, do you have any suggestions that uh, in mind related to any of helping feed people? Yeah, um, basically, uh, I'm uh, I'm suggesting that Food for Life Global, or what Food for Life Global does, should be scaled up by a factor of a thousand, so that it covers every human being on this planet. Mm-hmm. So, because what Food for Life Global does is fundamentally, uh, they create they they make stews. You know, their primary uh, food that they give out in schools, and I went to one of their. Um, school food distribution programs and i actually served the food to the kids and so they were making what they call kitchri it's really like a stew so it's a stew which is just a mixture of uh, grains lentils vegetables spices all put together so that it was a one pot meal you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a one bowl meal mm-hmm. and the kids loved it i mean they were coming back for seconds and i loved it Sure. I mean, I was eating their food and I was saying, I would love to eat this every day. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, I do know uh, the people from uh, Food for Life Global. So uh, I think what they're doing is great. And if, it, if they could spread spread it further, the further the better, the farther the better. So. Right. I think we all need to get involved in the, in the uh, in a food distribution program like that. Mm-hmm. You know, meaning start something like Food for Life Global. I, we call it Food Healers. And there are people working in Los Angeles actually right now on food healers. Uh, it's called We Are Uno. We are Uno. Yeah, we are, we are Uno. Yeah, Ingrid Butaya and Sarah Siegel. So they've been working on this. Basically, take all the vegetables that you get. You know, the, veg- the vegetables from farmers markets, and you take because grains are not that expensive. Grains and lentils, beans you can buy really cheap at uh, Costco. Right in bulk, and so start making these uh, these meals that are inexpensive, and simultaneously they are extremely healthy. Mm-hmm. So unless people are healthy, they're not going to be concerned about veganism or anything like that. You know, so they're more much more concerned about their own health. Sure, mm-hmm. and they're they're kept so unhealthy generally by what's distributed publicly exactly you know i mean yeah. all, all the cheese that goes to everybody who's lactose intolerant you know yeah I mean, the, the the system is designed to make money off diseases mm-hmm. yeah. so this is why the system subsidizes unhealthy food you were involved with uh go to health what the health what the hell? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah, I'm yeah, one of the, the executive producers. Yeah. Executive producer. So, how how did you come to that project? Like, how did that? Well, because I was involved with conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And and, was... and how were you involved with that too? They two <laughs> two really like some of the, two of the most important movies like ever really and so so well done you know so. So yeah. informative and entertaining because it's so interesting when when people you know are like uh, put on the spot. Yeah, <laughs> you it, know it's... when when you go to an environmental organization and say like, you know what what about animal agriculture since it's the number one cause of everything and they say well what about it right <laughs> <laughs> what about it.
That's yeah. their answer, you know. And and then you know you look at uh, the Heart Association or Diabetes Association and their recommended diets, and they're like, okay, well, well, I guess that's to keep them members, right? Well, for right. you know. So that's the systemic, the right? It's a, it's a systemic issue. So the system is set up so that um, people find a niche where they can make money, and they don't want to make that niche go away. So you're stuck in a system like that. So when you when you have a system, systemic problem like this, you cannot solve it by just yelling at people. You can you can only solve it then by then what am I then what am I, I going to do? You have to create a new system that people can come and join that does things correctly. See, it's it's a, I, when I was working on the internet back in uh, 95 96. People came and asked me, you know, you're a systems guy. Why don't you go and study the system of uh, this 100 megabit Ethernet uh, connection and tell us what we are doing wrong? Because people keep returning the, the devices back to us and saying it doesn't work. <laughs> right. So I started studying it and and I found that there were fundamental issues in the standard. So they had, you know, their scrambler was too short or something. There, there were some issues. OK, so. And I told them, look, you can't fix it. It's messed up. Okay, your, your your scramblers are too short. So unless you go change the whole standard, which you cannot do because you already sold a bunch of these things, they're out there. So, but I said this cable is so robust that I can make a robust standard that runs ten times faster. Uh, and that when that over-designed chip falls back to the the original speed, it'll be very robust. So that was my solution to them. Mm -hmm. And they all laughed at me. <laughs> right? But that's the same thing we need to do now. Because we have a system that's fundamentally messed up. Okay? Because it's based on axioms that are false. The axiom of supremacism is false. The axiom of consumerism is false. Because our entire system is based on the axiom that the pursuit of happiness is best accomplished by stoking and satisfying a never-ending series of latent desires in human beings. We know that that's not true. We know that if you keep chasing your desires over and over, you will never be happy. So we have a system that's lying to us about these two fundamental axioms. Okay, they're, they're basically false axioms. And we have created an entire system based on these because we, we, we have ads, right? We have 3,500 ads that the average American sees every day. Why? Because... The average American has been told that's where your happiness is, you know. And so as a result, half of Americans are on anti-anxiety anti medications or antidepressants or on illegal drugs on a regular basis. Half of adult Americans mm -hmm. are doing this, okay? I mean, so does that mean that we suck at the pursuit of happiness? Is that what that is? Or is it a system Based was on the other half happy? Half is on drugs. What about the other half? We don't are they know. happy or are they oppressing the other half that's not happy? I don't know. Right? <laughs> so we all we know statistically that half of the Americans well, are half's on a pretty high number, right? So yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's it is so. the worst. Mm -hmm. It's the worst in the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, and so this is the richest country in the world that has the worst um, drug use. You know so. You realize that we are being we are being taken for a ride. We are, we are, this system is messed up. 
And I'm saying that the axioms are messed up. Okay, so you build the system on false axioms. You cannot tweak it by changing the law while maintaining the axioms. So then you know? what would the new good system be? What would we do? What would that look like? Oh, so the correct axioms are, so I call it the true axiom of inner peace, which is that the pursuit of happiness is best accomplished by looking for it within ourselves. Okay, and second is what I call the axiom of homo ahimsa instead of the axiom of supremacism. So the axiom of homo ahimsa is that life, all life is one family in which we each bring our unique skills to give all we can, receive all we need, and become all we are, which is the vitality code of Dr. Shelley Ostroff. So basically, uh, we have to create a system that implements these two axioms. And, you know, uh, my, 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 my Western axioms that I thought were pretty good until you just mentioned yours um, were um, thou shalt not kill and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So I thought, right. you know, I mean, the, you know, the, the killing, you know, the violence has got right. to stop. And when you say ahimsa, that's really like uh, do don't do not harm. Right. Or, right. Absolutely. That's do not harm. So it, it is, but it's actually saying that every life has value, right? So that's, um, so that starts, starts by um, treating life as sacred, as opposed to treating life as, you know, we are superior to them, so we can do what we want, because we are more powerful than them. Then if we are more powerful than someone, you can oppress them. This is the might is right rule is what we have today. Okay. And I'm saying the might is right rule will never lead to a sustainable civilization, period. Mm -hmm. You can stand on your head, do whatever you want. But so long as you say might is right and greed is good, <laughs> you will never have a sustainable civilization. Mm -hmm. And so, Right, because there's always the oppression and, you know, no justice, no peace out of all of that. Exactly. Really. exactly yeah. Ultimately, sustainability is about morality. Because the truth is sustainable, lies are not. You know, justice is sustainable. Injustice is not. Kindness is sustainable. Cruelty is not. So anything that you consider to be moral is sustainable. Anything that you consider to be immoral is unsustainable. So fundamentally, we have an unsustainable civilization because it is based on immoral axioms. And and it's it's pretty much fed on immorality. Right. right. So that's its diet. And yeah. so... I would think then that if we were to go vegan in massive numbers, you know, that, that would represent huge steps in, in the directions about which you speak. It is a huge step, but until you have a system designed based on the correct axioms that people can plug into. Can that system not. even be designed until enough people are vegan and have that no, morality think, running through them? No, but there, I think there are enough of us now that we can start doing it. We oh, don't have to wait okay. for everybody to go vegan to do it. Yeah, we can start doing it on All our right. own. All we, right, we, we are in huge numbers right now. That is true. Although yeah. sometimes we feel isolated in the world. We are, we're massive, really. So. In fact, I, I'm teaching a course uh, through the Hindu University of America exactly on this. And, and I have a bunch of uh, students who I'm trying to rope into building a system like this. Okay, so... Uh, because uh, un unless we have a system like this, 
we cannot go and blame people. We cannot go and tell people, hey, you know, you're well, being what bad. What are the specifics of building a system like this again? Like what? what so you need to create a new system. You need new institutions, new infrastructure, a new constitution, and a new currency, a new currency system. Well, then, so that, then do you have to have a specific uh, geographic uh, location all your own to be oh no no this can be so this can be a virtual world that you're creating a virtual vegan world you create okay so you create a, a vegan world in which there are vegan institutions a vegan constitution a vegan infrastructure and vegan currencies so a vegan currency that uh, we can trade among us you know basically what is a currency it just says i can see the the flow of uh, information that's what a currency is. So it says that, you know, I um, I did this for you and therefore someone is going to do something for me later because I did this for you. So that I'm part of a, a community that's helping each other out. See, that's how we coordinate our actions as human beings. You know, billions of us can can coordinate our actions together. And that's how we became so powerful. And, and we are sort of misusing our power at the moment. But the fact that we are able to coordinate our actions among billions of us is a good thing. And we can use that to do good as opposed to just destroy the planet, right? Mm. So it's the same, the same thing that allows us to be very powerful at destroying the planet will allow us to be very powerful at regenerating the planet. But to do that, you really have to create these new systems, the new systems that are based on um, fostering the good, based on creating collective intelligence that is stronger than each individual. And it has to begin with equality. So fundamentally, people should feel that they're being treated fairly when they join the new system. Because if they think we also have the same hierarchies and somebody is going to just corner all the stuff and, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you have another Bill Gates and another uh, whatever, <laughs> Jeff Bezos, then why would they want to move from there to here? Right? It's the right. same damn thing. So, so, they, so you really have to create a system and you have to be scrupulous about it. It has to be, uh, it has to, we have to be able to show theoretically that this system, the new system that you're building, uh, will have distributed intelligence. It will have collective intelligence that's smarter than than um, any individual. It will have processes in place to foster that, just like what we did with the internet committees, right? Mm-hmm. Because if the internet committees were like the government, <laughs> the internet would not be working, okay? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. the government really takes a, a beautiful planet and trashes it. That's what our governments are doing these days. Sure. Um, yeah. So you say you're trying to do an experimental project uh, based on that. You're, you're, um, yeah, we are creating a currency system and we are, uh, we are sort of um, a currency system as part of it, like you say. Yeah. Currency system is part of it, because if you look at the current uh, way we, in which we measure our uh, our activities, we have a currency system that's fundamentally messed up. It's flawed. OK, it's 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 just one number. Everything is, comes down to one number. How many dollars? 
or how many colon rupees or whatever, you know, then everything is interchangeable to a dollar. So ultimately, it's the dollar that drives everything, right? So this is why it's an American empire. And um, so you then measure everything based on this dollar. And you say, if this, it if it, if I'll buy something that's worth $1, if something else is $2, I, go, I don't go for the $2, I go for the $1. So it's just one number that determines whether you choose one or the other, right? Now, if you look at the planet, there are lots of things that are going wrong. The land use is, is going out of whack, or the water use is going out of whack, you know, carbon dioxide levels, um, there's nitrogen levels, phosphorus levels, all those things have to be measured. And we have to then make sure that we stay within the bounds. So meaning you cannot boil it all down to one number. <laughs> mm -hmm. You have to have multiple numbers to figure out what whether you're doing something right or not, right? So it really has to be a multidimensional currency. So it becomes complicated for, in, for ordinary people, So which is why we need to have systems in place. So that makes it automatic for people. So you just get a flow of money coming into your account and you're happy. So if I have a flow of money coming into my account, I'll do what I need to do. Well, sign me up. Exactly, right? <laughs> in fact, when I explain this to people, they all say, sign me up, you know? And I think, wait a minute. You know? <laughs> I don't have everything in place yet, but, <laughs> but we have to write the software for it, right? So, so, and this isn't something geographical, like because Climate Healers is in Phoenix. You're saying this is something more virtual with people participating anywhere, or yeah, exactly. It has to be uh, virtual, and anyone can be able to should be able to participate from anywhere in the world. And in fact, um, I think that the poor people will flock to it more, much faster than the rich people. Which is good because they are the ones who are doing all the grunge work right now. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, we are really, um, we really have a system that exploits the poor uh, terribly. So oh, ab ab absolutely right. If the, yeah. if, uh, if they if, if they run out of money and their account goes below zero, you, you know, you get charged. You know, they they charge <laughs> you for being poor. There are more more fees on the poor. You know. Right. So we we kind of uh, have a system that steals from the poor to enrich the rich. Mm -hmm. So so the rich get richer and richer, and the poor get poorer and poorer. Uh, you know, but then we we create the Ponzi scheme and saying, oh, we're going to make the pie bigger. <laughs> but mm -hmm. but beyond a certain point, we only have one planet, you know. So, sure. So we've already made the pie bigger than the planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's no more to grow. Right. No more. To right. Do. Yeah. I mean, we need a second planet, especially if we're going to, you know, increase, uh, you know, meat and dairy and egg consumption. You know, yeah. we're, we're we need a second planet. Well, no, obviously we cannot do that anymore. So I'm assuming that there's going to be a vegan world. So in my mind, there is already it's already a vegan world. You know, it's just people are just walking around. They're all pre-vegans. They all they're all vegans in their hearts. And. And they're just trying to come into alignment with their hearts. I, I can relate to that. I, I, I like that. I think that, yeah, everybody's a pre-vegan. Everybody has a, a vegan inside ready to emerge Absolutely. at some point. And the, the sooner the better. Right? Absolutely, so, yeah. Yeah. And, and so why did you pick, uh, what year are you saying everybody has to be vegan? Because I keep saying no, now, now, now. So right. what you're saying, 
Uh, I'm saying 2026 because I want to create a, you know, when I started off with the, with the goal of 2026, that's based on the calculation that we are on track to wipe out almost 100% of wild animals by that year. Mm. So at the current rate. So if we don't do anything, if we don't talk about vegan world 2026, and if we just let it be, if we say vegan by 2050, you know, the people who talk about 50% by 2040 or whatever, and that never, you know, you never get to a uh, a solution that way, okay? You never say, I'll, I'll cut it by half by, you know, I don't know, 40 years from now, because people are going to say 40 years from now, who cares? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing what I have to do now, right? Right, so, so I want a 100% vegan world uh, within two months. Well, that's a good goal, okay? <laughs> but is it achievable? So then I started saying, okay, let's pick a goal in which that number, the, the date has a significance. So when people ask me, what is the significance of 2026? I tell them, if we keep doing what we're doing today, by 2026, we are on track to wipe out every last wild animal on this planet. Do you want that to happen? They say, no, of course not. They say, okay, then you have to go vegan. So we have to create a vegan world by that date. So so the number has a significance, right? So the date has a significance and it's achievable. So I say in five years, can we persuade every human being on the planet to switch from this to that? Well, Why not? I'm, I'm willing to work on it, but, uh, you know, again, the sooner the better. The sooner yeah, the better because the, the day everybody goes vegan, it'll be hard to celebrate because we'll say like, hey, it's great. Everybody's vegan. Oh, too bad. All the wild animals are gone as of today. It's kind, well, of, kind of a downer. <laughs> well, think about it, Bob. If we get everybody to go vegan by that date, there will be wild animals left. Why? Because we haven't killed them all. See, see it's not like we are going to keep eating meat, you know, and, and then on in on December 31st, 2026, everybody goes vegan on one day. That's not how it happens. Mm-hmm. So so we're building toward that number. We, we need exactly. the, the, the new people who are vegan today and tomorrow and next week to all add up to finally getting to that point. Then. Right. It's a it's a it's a momentum. You're building momentum towards that date. OK, so it's like a you're like saying. So I use the analogy of uh, of a car. So you're driving a car at 90 miles an hour and it's a beautiful car it's a convertible ferrari and you're you know the wind is blowing through your hair and you're so happy and you round a bend in the road and you see a concrete wall in front of you on the road some joker built it okay and it's just five seconds away from impact at that point would you say oh i love to drive my car fast and therefore i'll never take my foot off the accelerator Yeah. Or would you say, I wish I had a, a, a Tesla so I could crash into the car, into the wall of the Tesla? <laughs> no. You will take your foot off the accelerator and put it on the brake as quickly as possible. Right? Mm-hmm. Especially if your children and grandchildren are in the backseat. That is what we face today. And to me, veganism is about convincing everybody that their foot should be off that accelerator and on the brake. So when you go vegan, all you have done is taken your foot off the accelerator. So putting your foot on the brake is about activism, is about going out there and regenerating the forest, is doing the opposite of what we were doing before, which is destroy the planet. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that's clarified that, that we build the momentum and everybody's vegan by then because I just didn't want people to gorge themselves like for the next four years going like, oh, I, I can go vegan in 2026. So it's yeah. like it's like meatless Mondays when people double up on the meat on Tuesday for the sacrifice they made, you know? No, no, no. no the message should be go vegan now, right? Vegan so now. the message you're telling people is go vegan now because our goal is to get to uh, 100% vegan by 2026. Mm. Though internally our goal is at least 50%. Okay, so that's what we are trying to get to. But 100, we talk about 100%, we'll get to 50%. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but but the momentum should be towards a vegan world because I say it is it is just plain common sense for us to go vegan. It's plain common sense to take your foot off the accelerator when you see a concrete wall in front of you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to tell you. I don't have to go persuade you. <laughs> to take your foot off the accelerator. Sure. It's, you will be stupid to keep it there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even you see a concrete wall. Mm-hmm. But that's the wall I'm pointing out to people in 2026, in that number 2026. I'm pointing out the wall. Yep. Well, I would say, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're about to crash into that wall. So, like, everybody get ready to stomp on that brake. And, yeah. and, the, and the break is, you know, to stop eating meat, dairy, fish, and eggs and uh, get get active for the cause. You know, you, you were talking about Gandhi in India before. Why do we feel that there's like a foundation uh, for compassion in India? Like, why mm. is there that, that association? Yeah, India has been a source of a, a lot of uh, religious leaders who, who based their... Um, worldview on kindness and compassion to all life, to uh, treating nature as sacred. So I would say, you know, Hinduism is the largest indigenous religion in the on the planet. Okay? It's because Hinduism is based on reverence towards nature. We treat nature as as goddess. She's a, she's our goddess. Right? So. It's based on that. Not that it hasn't been corrupted. It's been corrupted too, just like every other religion has been corrupted. Um, but I also think that, you know, fundamentally it is it is there in every religion. Okay? If you look deeper, it's there in every religion. Because every religion is really talking about sustainability. And sustainability, which is meaning that you are living on earth for millions of years. You have to live as if you are living on earth for millions of years, not just, you know, for the next 50 years and then you're done, right? Mm. Mm. <laughs> so it's not short-term thinking. So religions are all based on this long-term propagation of the species. And that only comes with kindness and compassion and morality. And um, this is why all religions have compassion at their core. Okay, so it's not just Indian religions, but in India, it it was front and center. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a something that you had to look for. You know, it was it was in our daily lives. Yeah, well, well, even you know, in the biblically in the uh, Old Testament, Genesis book one verse twenty nine says to be right. vegan, and right. <laughs> I don't know, people seem to have skipped that page because, like you say, I mean it. It's basically like God's first commandment uh, on what to eat, and it is vegan. So uh, I don't know. 
people kind of skip over it whenever I mention it. That's another thing that shocks people. Like, I I never saw that. I have to go back and check on that. You know. See, but think about all the rituals and festivals we have, right? Our festivals are all based on uh, animal foods. So we have a, the the rituals of a predator species mm. because we are celebrating that we have we have won life's competitive game. We are the top predator on the planet. Okay, so we have won that, and so we celebrate uh, our the predator the predator species status that we have, the top predator species status. So we need to change those rituals and festivals so that we celebrate that we are the caretaker species of the planet and celebrate so with abundance. With the abundance, yeah. basically, yeah. we have to recognize that when you are given so much power by nature. You are also given responsibility, mm-hmm. and uh, so uh, because we use that power to bully other species, or we use that power to nurture them. It's up to us what we want to do with that power. Mm-hmm. We have that power, whether we like it or not. We have that power. Okay, we have the power to destroy the planet. We have the power to kill any animal we want. We we have the power to do you know, to. Immeasurable harm or immeasurable good is up to us what we want to use that power for. So I, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I remember that scene in uh, A Few Good Men at the end. I don't know if you remember that movie, Few Good Men. No. A Few Good Men where Jack Nicholson, you know, is being, uh, he gets taken out because he, he ordered the code red. And then, these two Marines who have been who are on trial for murder, uh, they get the verdict that they are not guilty of the murder. They are not guilty of attempted murder, but they are guilty of conduct unbecoming a Marine, and they get dishonorably discharged from the Marine Corps. And so that that uh, one cadet he says. What did we do wrong? We did nothing wrong. You know, we just followed orders. And the other cadet says, yeah, we did something wrong. We are supposed to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. That's what Marines are supposed to do. And we actually should have fought for that that cadet that we killed. So... Basically, you know, when you have the power, when you have the power that you can fight for things, that you have this tremendous strength and and power that's been given to you, you should use it to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves, right? So fundamentally, it's about protecting and caretaking the planet. Sure. Oh, that's great. Do you, do you, are you involved with any specific campaigns with climate healers now? And Oh, and also, I think that... In the past, you mentioned a uh, a vegan group involved with planting trees. Uh, I don't know if you right. want to mention them too. Or... Yeah, yeah. In fact, we are going to be talking about them during the convergence, um, to, starting tomorrow, <laughs> starting mm. Saturday, April 24th and 25th. Um, so we have created an app that enables people to to become more effective as vegan activists. So it's meant for vegans. It's meant for vegans to uh, to tell their friends, hey, all you have to do is download this app and you can see all these short videos 
I'll tell you why you have to go vegan and why we have to uh, communicate this as quickly as possible. So it's like saying, you know, that story of the the car, right? And driving 90 miles an hour and discovering a wall in front of you. So it's about the story of the wall. And so uh, the organization that we partnered with for that app is the organization you're talking about. It's a vegan organization that reforests the planet. And their name is Sadhana Forest. And um, spell that Sadhana, S A D H A N A, uh, forest. Okay. And um, basically, uh, they have turned deserts into forests in India, into native forests and food forests. So basically, you know, there's a lot of fruit trees and nut trees and and edible plants and so on, so that people in the neighborhood don't ever have to go hungry. And um, and it's a vegan organization That's because crazy. they they recycle everything. So basically, they're, they're closing the loop. So they're showing, they're creating an example of how humans can live in harmony with nature. With uh, so because right now in the cities we really are not in harmony with nature. We, you know, our waste is being collected and flushed down the toilet, you know, into a sewer that goes all the way into the ocean eventually, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or we take the solid waste and we put it in the landfill. So <laughs> that's not a that's not a good way to close the loop. So you're losing all those nutrients, right? So, uh, but to close the loop with with the nutrients, you have to have a vegan community. Because if you are eating animals, you're going to have a load of toxins in your poop. Yeah. And no one really wants that. Okay? Really? So, I I can't help but when when I envision that wall, though, I I, kind of see more like a cow, pig, and chicken heading towards the the blades, you know, the knives and... uh, the wall. I really, uh, I really want to step on the brake for that. That's uh, right. You know, it's, uh... So we have a killing machine, okay, on the planet. We have a killing machine that's killing 80 billion animals every year, 80 billion farmed animals, and one to three trillion wild animals, and 40 million human beings every year who die of hunger and diet-related causes, obesity-related causes. Okay, mm-hmm. so. That's the killing machine. That's that. Yeah, and 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 yeah, you know, heart disease included among that. Heart disease, it, cancer, you know, yeah. it all can be included in the killing machine. In the killing and machine. The yeah. Profitable, the very profitable killing machine. But you know. Yeah, people are making money off the killing machine, and you know, making trillions of dollars off of it, and they're um, uh, and but they're also destroying the planet with it. So, so yeah. let's, if you say step that, on the brake for all of that. Exactly. So I say, you know, if you want to shut down the killing machine, you have to go vegan. So uh, that killing machine is destroying the planet. Okay. And if you say the planet is dying, but you want to run the killing machine, you want to patronize the killing machine, you want to pay money for the killing machine, you are doing the exact opposite of what you should be doing. So. So again, and how do people get that app, or what it's called, or what? what it's called the United in Heart app. We're going to talk about it. We're going to. It's going to be unveiled during the convergence, and um, uh, and then it'll be available on iPhone and Android. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what it's called again? It's called the United in Heart. 
United in Heart app. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So we're going to be screening the documentary and show and demonstrating the app uh, over the con during the conversions. Okay. Now, we'll also now, have, uh, say, say when the convergence is and, and how people can be involved with that. And um, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that uh, this show gets put together and is uh, could be out there uh, tomorrow, which is Saturday. Remind me of the date. Where are we? April 24th. April 24th. So, uh, yeah. yeah, so so what do you mean by convergence? Uh, what, the convergence what? happens every three months. And it's usually the last weekend of January, April, July, and October. And um, so it's happening on April 24th and 25th. So Saturday and Sunday, the last weekend of April. And it's just two days. We get together. We talk about what we are doing and we help each other get better at what we do. And how do That's people get involved with that? So join, uh, you can register by going to climatehealers.org uh, or you can uh, go to um, bit.ly, so bit slash bit.ly slash capital wedge, capital tix5. So V-E-G-T-I-X-5. So it's a capital V and a capital T in that. All right. So, um, anything else you want to mention about anything, or uh, should I take Daisy for a walk now? <laughs> oh, yeah. Go ahead and take Daisy for a walk. <laughs> it's awesome talking to you, Bob, as always. Oh, it was a w wonderful conversation, and there's so much to learn from you, and I really appreciate your perspectives. And uh, again, you are a, uh, a, a vegan superhero. You know, so and uh, I appreciate yeah. everything you're doing and, you know, dedicating yourself to the cause. I mean, it's really that's uh, so admirable. So it's really an honor to have you on today's show, Dr. Silesh Rao, and it's climatehealers.org. Right. And I, I, I have to tell people that I report to my granddaughter. So yeah. she's my boss. You, you, yeah, like I report to Daisy. She's my <laughs> boss. But uh, oh, and, and yeah, so. But didn't she have some effect on you, or like Absolutely. what didn't you? What what was it that she said or did about her her friends, the animals? Yeah, basically, I was reading a story to her. I was reading uh, Ruby Roth's um, book. That's why we don't eat animals to her, and she was five years old at that time. And at the end of the story, she asked me, "So, Grandpa, who were the first human beings?" And I I have promised her that I'll never ever lie to her. So I tried to explain to her how evolution works. So I said, imagine that you're standing on the street and you're holding your mama by your hand and you ask your mama to bring her mama to stand by her side and so on. So you create a long line of mothers on this side of the street. And on the other side of the street, you ask a chimpanzee to do the same thing with her mother and her grandmother and so on. By the time these two lines go from Phoenix to Tucson, they would merge. Because both lines are going to say, hey, that's my mama too. Immediately, she sat up in bed and she said, what? Are you telling me that animals are my family? And I said, now that you put it that way, yeah, they are your family. She said, then, then why are people eating my family? And she started bawling. She said, grandpa, make them stop. They're eating my family. You know, and, and I realized I had created a world full of monsters for my granddaughter. Because she sees all these people around her eating her family. And I was trying to console her. And I said, Kimaya, this is what I do. 
In fact, it's my job to make them stop. <laughs> she immediately stopped crying. She looked at me wide-eyed. She said, what? This is your job? This is your job? You know you haven't done your job. <laughs> she said, when will you do your job? <laughs> I and I it. said, I better do it by 2026. Otherwise, we are all in big trouble. <laughs> Because <laughs> I had just calculated the 2026 number at that time, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and she said, will you promise me that? And I said, okay, I'll promise you. She said, will you give me a pinky promise? I said, okay, I'll give you a pinky promise. And so we gave a pinky promise. And then she said, you can never, ever break a pinky promise. And then she went to sleep. And I realized at that point that I had made a very serious promise to a little girl who was going to hold me to it. Well, maybe we can all help you uh, and exactly. make sure you keep that promise. It's, it's our job, too. Exactly. And I re- this is why I say it's a promise from my generation to her generation yeah. that we will solve this problem. Yeah. We yeah. will resolve this. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what, uh, when, I, when I started doing this show 20 years ago, I didn't know how long it would last, but in a sense, I was making a promise to the animals just to try to keep it going as long as possible just to to try to help them so you know it it is our job it's our job yeah it's our job so that's, now i that's beautiful this, though. Is, this yeah. is what i do every day you know and i'm every morning i get up this this is my life getting well, to a, I mean, it's your job you should be doing it sure you know. <laughs> yeah no, seven days a week i do it okay so I'm not taking any breaks here. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. No union or anything. Right. You're no just, union. Uh... <laughs> nothing. This is. This is my life. Yeah. I'm prepared to give my life for this cause. Well, I'm. I, 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 I'm. I'm with you on that. You know. And. Uh, you know. What. What better cause uh, to, to which uh, you should give your life? You know. So. Right. I mean, it's kind of the meaning of life. It's the way of life, uh, really. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Silesh. It was a pleasure talking to you, and uh, I hope uh, to be back in touch with you soon. Let's keep doing what we're doing. Sounds good, Bob. Talk to you soon. Okay, that will just about do it for this amazingly awesome episode of Go Vegan Radio with Bob Linden. Our thanks to Dr. Silesh Rao of Climate Healers. Thank you for listening. Uh, It would be so wonderful if you can support our work as uh, we've been doing this for 20 years in our commitment to the animals, improved human health, and saving the environment. And so you can make a donation, which would be greatly appreciated. And uh, check out uh, some of the archives at goveganradio.com. <laughs>